0: This is a Timmet Podcast. This podcast is part of the series On the Marge. This episode is part of the second series. Chronologically, it falls somewhere before episode 35. The title of this episode is Available Light. Available Light It all came together rather well. At 6pm, there was a funky foreign documentary that we had never heard of, but it seemed interesting. And at 8pm, there was a film that had been quite well received at the Toronto International Film Festival, but had never made it to theatres. Well, not to theatres in Whitehorse, anyway. How did the Available Light Film Festival ever manage to find these films and bring them to Yukon? We had no classes that evening or any meetings, either. No piano lessons or kids' indoor soccer. So we ate an early supper, dropped our daughter Alex off at the Glatz, and headed down to the Yukon Arts Center. On foot, of course. Mara and I always walked to the Arts Center when we could. It's only about 25 minutes one way, and this was a nice warm February evening, maybe about minus 10 or 15. It would add about 5 kilometers to my weekly walking total, too. Mara and I made our way through the forest, down to the area where it had been fire-smarted and past the mother tree that Pamela McPherson had suspected of being a Druid centre of worship. We slipped across the water main gash in the trees, down the hill, and across the bridge on McIntyre Creek. We went around behind the college, and emerged on the road behind the art centre. It was a pleasant walk, as usual. We arrived in time to check out the new display in the art gallery, and talked to friends who were volunteer ushers. We milled around in the lobby, taking great care not to check our coats at the coat check, in spite of the friendly volunteer who was looking after it. People rarely check their coats at the art centre, and instead prefer to hang them on the backs of their seats. So the funky documentary lived up to its billing, although the art centre was only half full. We managed to get good places for the 8pm presentation by leaving our coats on the seats. Good thing too, because it was sold out. An excellent movie from the digital projector on the giant screen. It was about 10pm by the time we had exchanged verbal film reviews with friends and headed home. We made our way along the road at the back of the art centre, and stepped into the forest. It was at that point that I realized we had forgotten the flashlight. It was still hanging by its lanyard on the hook beside the door at home. Of course, in the summer, we never needed the flashlight, because it never got dark, and there wasn't much going on at the art centre anyway. And in the winter, even a partial moon and a few stars on a clear night were enough so that we could easily find our way through the forest. With low overcast in the winter, the lights from the city reflected on the snow and the sky, making the sky glow white and lighting up the forest better than the moon. So the forgotten flashlight should really not have been a problem. Except for maybe this particular night. The sky was coal black, not even a hint of moon or stars. Maybe due to some really high clouds, not the sort of low overcast to make the sky white. But that was okay. We had walked this same route many times by day and night, so we plunged right in. About 30 steps into the forest, we discovered that it was even darker than we had first thought. Mara and I linked mitts so we wouldn't get separated. My mind went back to a happy memory of my boyhood on the prairies. My family had been at the lake for a summer vacation. My dad and I were finding our way back to the cottage from a neighbor's campfire through a particularly dark night. My dad showed me how I could see with my feet, feeling my way along the path just by sensing the texture of the surface under my sandals. It was the same sort of thing on the way back from the art center, only easier. Though we could see almost nothing, we could quite easily tell just by feel, when we had blundered off the packed snow of the path and onto the softer snow on the edge. The only issue was finding the different branches and connections of paths to get back to our house in Porter Creek. Found the junction to the creek trail, okay, and crossed the bridge. Halfway up the hill, we took a wrong fork, but quickly realized our error because the trees just didn't look quite right. I don't think I could have identified particular trees, but we had been up and down that hill so often that we knew, Oh we just knew. We crossed the water main gash in the woods, and ducked past the mother tree very quietly so as not to disturb any druids who might be worshipping there. We passed through the fire-smarted area and entered the heavier forest in the last kilometre or so before the house. It was then that we heard the bear. We could see almost nothing, just a vague difference in shades of black to differentiate where the trail might be from where it might not be, but our eyes were wide open, trying to make out anything we could, and our other senses were operating at full capacity to compensate. We were feeling our way with our feet and could tell by the sound of our steps in the snow when we were getting close to the edge of the path. I'm not sure we smelled anything because of the below-freezing temperature, but it's not surprising that our hypersensitive hearing detected the bear, even though our toques covered our ears. At first it was a crack, as if the bear had stepped on a stick, and then another crack. Mara and I stopped to listen. There was silence then a swishing sound as the bear moved past a bush, then some more branches breaking, and more bushes, and a crunching sound in the snow. My arm snaked around Mara's waist and I pulled her near. We listened in silence. The sounds were getting quite close. This time it was a bunch of small twigs breaking, then some branches snapping back after the bear's passage. And unexpectedly, the bear fell, or at least that's what it sounded like, a body falling heavily on the ground. There was a growling sound, and then the bear started to swear in a quite distinctive manner as it struggled to its feet. My arm fell away from Mara's waist as the dark body burst from the undergrowth into the dim path just ahead of us. Hello, Derek, I said in a conversational tone. Bah! exclaimed Derek. "Chuck," And Mara offered Mara. I'm here, too. What the hell are you doing here? asked Derek, a bit out of breath. You scared me. Um... Uh. We're on our way back from the art center, I replied. Uh, what are you doing here? Well, I'm, um, I was out helping Ruth with a science experiment. She had the big camera and tripod. Something about, I don't know, long exposure images of stars to see how they move or, or something like that. So while she was setting up, I just stepped away to, to... Ah, you weren't smoking, I hope, exclaimed Mara, who knew that Derek was quitting, but was having a hard time of it. No, 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 not at all. Really, not at all, protested Derek. Uh, Don't you even mention that possibility to my wife. No, I wasn't smoking. Not one bit. Uh, But if I was, it was only one cigarette. Mm, So, I prompted in lieu of a more specific question. Mm, So, when I went back to where the camera was, Ruth and the camera were both gone. Uh, But I'm not quite sure it was the same place. But in any case, Ruth is lost somewhere and I've been trying to find her to take her home. She must be pretty scared by now. It's been about half an hour. Then Derek had a thought. Maybe there are muggers and rapists after her. We have to find her quick. I wouldn't worry about muggers and rapists here, I said. I'm not sure what actually motivates muggers and rapists, but I'm pretty sure they don't hang around for long, cold periods in really dark woods where just about nobody else goes. But we have to find Ruth before she's traumatized, said her father. Let's go get flashlights and come back. Yes, we need flashlights. So we escorted Derek back to the corner of Walnut Crescent, and he headed to his house. Ten minutes later, after Mara had picked up Alex at the Glatt's and taken her home to bed, I was back at Derek's door with Joseph Glatt, Dave McPherson, Quirk the dog, and an array of flashlights. I rang the bell. Ruth answered, in her pajamas and housecoat. Yeah, I got lost in the woods, explained Ruth, jerking her thumb over her shoulder at her father, who was hovering behind her, embarrassed. Science experiment didn't work. Not enough available light. So I looked around for my dad, and when I couldn't find him, I came home, knowing he'd show up eventually. Oh, well, thanks for finding him. Everything was okay, so we all went home. Alex had refused to go to bed until she knew that Ruth was okay. I really wasn't worried about her, said Alex. Ruth is pretty smart. She can figure things out. As I tucked Alex into bed, my mind turned to smart children. Ruth was 15, was already running circles around her parents with her science fair projects and her pragmatic approach to independence. Derek was having a real problem with that. Alex was ten years younger than Ruth, and was already way beyond me sometimes in terms of insight into what was going on in the world and how life really worked. The sky had cleared, and the moon shone through the window. In that available light, I wondered what Alex would be like at Ruth's age, and what would be her place in the world. I didn't know, but it was sure going to be interesting. I hoped I could cope better than Derek. I'm sure proud to be the dad of a smart little girl like you, I said, as I leaned over to kiss her forehead. But Alex was already asleep. This has been a Timmet podcast in a series called On the Marge. Instrumental intro and exit are courtesy of Kate Weeks. If you would like more of these podcasts, check out the podcast website at timmet.com. Dot CA slash podcasts. That's T I M M I T dot CA slash podcasts.